Welcome to Bite-Size Battles. World history and the history of warfare has been shaped by geopolitics for millennia. The landscape has always restricted the choices leaders make and compelled others. Every one of our continents is defined by geographical factors. Europe is essentially all the land from the Atlantic to the Ural Mountains, and from the Arctic to the Mediterranean Sea and the Bosphorus. North America, everything from the Arctic to the Isthmus of Panama, bounded by the Atlantic and the mighty Pacific Oceans. Africa ends and Asia begins, essentially, at the Suez Canal. And the Suez Canal is just one of many, many examples of geopolitics driving conflict. The British conquered Egypt primarily to control Suez because it's a commercial shortcut, a vital waterway which dramatically cuts the sailing time from Europe to Asia. In the heyday of the British Empire, getting to and from India and Australia in the shortest possible time was critical. A ship passing through Suez can save 4,000 miles on a trip from London to Mumbai, versus going the long way around Africa. So the British took it from the French. They fought over it again in Napoleon's time. The Germans wanted it in World War II. And when Egyptian President Nasser nationalised it in 1956, it sparked an invasion by the British, French and Israelis. From Russia to the Roman Empire, and the cauldron of the Middle East to the Greco-Persian Wars. Welcome to this, the penultimate episode in this epic series, Why We Fight Geopolitics. The Russian bear. He's so huge, so vast, that if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, he's everywhere, not far away. Just two and a half miles separates the United States from Russia across the Bering Strait, and just 28 miles separates it from Japan. It mind-bogglingly borders China as well as Germany. At 6.3 million square miles, a full 11% of the world's entire landmass is Russia. Russia's vastness, though, is a double-edged sword. It has swallowed up invading armies multiple times, including Napoleon in 1812 and Hitler in the 1940s. And it gives Russia strategic depth into which it can retreat, regroup and re-emerge at a time and place of their choosing. But its great size also makes it vulnerable. Russia's omnipresent leader, Vladimir Putin, has to think about the Japanese and the Chinese in the East. They remember well the Japanese victories in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 and 5, and the border spat with China in 1969. And in the West, thousands of miles away, Putin has to also think about Poland. In fact, he probably obsesses about Poland. 
Poland represents the narrow point through which all the major invasions of Russia have surged. From the Baltic Sea in the north to the Carpathian Mountains in the south. It's a geographic pinch point just 300 miles wide. Move east from here and it's flatland all the way to Moscow. But by the time you get to Russia's borders, the north-south width isn't 300 miles anymore. It's 2,000 miles. That makes it as difficult to defend as it does to attack. Russian military doctrine therefore dictates that if threatened, Russia's forces must drive forward to occupy the Polish bottleneck, protecting Moscow and the Russian heartland. This Polish bottleneck is why Russia is so concerned with Ukraine. Ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, every single former member of the Warsaw Pact, bar Russia itself, is now a member either of the European Union or NATO. All that Russia has seen then is a creeping of economic and military alliances closer and closer to Moscow, making it harder if necessary to drive Russia's military to occupy Poland and its protective bottleneck. Russia, in short, feels threatened. To be fair to Putin, he's as aware of history as anyone. On average, counting from Napoleon's invasion in 1812, Russia has had to fight wars of defence on the North European plain every 33 years. So when Ukraine began flirting with joining the EU, Putin was, let's say, displeased. And when, under intense Putin pressure, Ukraine pulled out of a massive trade deal with the EU and instead signed a pact with Russia, protests and riots erupted throughout the country. By February 2014, the Ukrainian president had fled and pro-Western, anti-Russian factions took power. Now, loud alarm bells rang in Moscow. This was a red line. A neutral Ukraine was irritating, but a pro-Western Ukraine is a no-no, because its eastern border is just 500 miles from Moscow. So Putin did two things, although he still says he didn't. Putin has been backing pro-Russian rebels in the east of Ukraine ever since stoking a Ukrainian civil war which still rages but gets almost zero coverage in the press. The aim is to keep the government of Ukraine unstable and ultimately to return it to Russian influence because that keeps NATO's borders much, much further away. The second act was chronologically the first pretty much just as the pro-Western factions were taking power in Kiev, Russia moved clandestine forces to Crimea, seizing the peninsula and holding a referendum in which its claimed 95.5% of votes supported seceding from Ukraine and joining Russia. This was annexation under the guise of liberating ethnic Russians clamouring to rejoin the motherland. More or less worldwide condemnation followed, but Putin didn't care. He got Crimea, and it was clear that beyond sanctions, no one was going to do a thing about it. 
But why did he even want Crimea? The answer lies in another set of geopolitical concerns for Russia. It's access to warm water ports. Russia, of course, has ports far to the north. But winter sea ice essentially blocks their use for much of the year. Even in the summer, if you want to take any effective action in, let's say, the Mediterranean, you don't want to have to sail a fleet from northwest Russia through the NATO-controlled Greenland-Iceland-UK or GIUK gap, through Gibraltar and past Spain, Italy and Greece. Far better to have a fleet stationed in the Black Sea, just a short hop away. Russia did have a major military port in the Black Sea, but, you guessed it, it was in Crimea. It was leased to them by Ukraine. But if Kiev leaned to the west and eventually joined the EU or NATO or both, Russia risked losing its access to the Black Sea and therefore its ability to act independently in the Mediterranean. And that's something Russia is unwilling to accept. It was these same concerns which drove the Russo-Japanese War in 1904 and 5. Russia wanted a Pacific warm water port and set its sights on Korea. But Japan had ideas of its own for Korea, namely pushing back Chinese and Russian influence and opening it up to Japanese annexation. When negotiations failed, Japan launched a surprise attack on Russia's Port Arthur in a preview of Pearl Harbor 40 years later. In this and subsequent battles, the Japanese sank every Russian naval vessel in the Pacific by the end of 1904. And when Russia sent its Baltic fleet 20,000 nautical miles as reinforcements, they too were annihilated. It's a clear demonstration of geopolitical tensions erupting into war. In fact, one of the main reasons Japan was able to run military circles around Russia was that it had undergone an extraordinarily rapid industrialization and modernization of its society and armed forces. So it was lean, innovative and up-to-date with the latest in hardware and tactics. And they transformed themselves so quickly because of geopolitics. In 1853, the American Commodore Matthew Perry arrived at the Japanese capital of Edo with a force of four naval vessels known as the Perry Expedition. He had orders to force the Japanese to end their 220-year policy of isolation and open up their ports to trade. Perry began a campaign of intimidation and had his ships steam past the Japanese guardboats fired blank shots from 73 cannon and gave orders to repel any Japanese attempts to board. When he landed in Japan, he did so with pomp and military show, with hundreds of marines as an honour guard and several bands blasting out the star-spangled banner. Japan was effectively a country still technologically and societally medieval so the implied threats could not be ignored, and they opened their ports to the US and then to Russia, Great Britain, France and every other major power. 
For the Japanese, the message was clear. If they wanted to avoid such humiliation in the future, they had to develop sufficient industry and military to resist external pressure. And to do that effectively as an island nation, without many resources of their own, they had to have an overseas empire. Hence, their interest in Korea and in crushing Russian objections in the process. Two and a half thousand years before Japan was annihilating Russia's navy, events in Greece were to begin shaping one of history's most enduring geopolitical concepts. The idea of the West. The Greco-Persian Wars of the 6th and 5th centuries BC are famous for battles like Marathon, Salamis, Plataea and, of course, Leonidas's famous stand at Thermopylae. Less well-known is the geopolitical aspect of the fight. It all kicked off when the Persian Empire started salivating over Greek settlements in Ionia, what's now Western Turkey. After Persia took them, Athens led a force which supported the Ionians in revolt and ended up burning the regional Persian capital to the ground. Darius the Great, the Persian king, couldn't stand for that and invaded Greece. For both sides, while much of this war was of course about independence, revenge and power, the foundations of it were the geopolitical control of Ionia and the Aegean Sea. For the Persians, they wanted to be rid of the pesky, troublesome Ionians on their doorstep, but more importantly, wanted to extend their influence in the Mediterranean, Aegean and Black Seas and control the trade that flowed through them. For the Greeks, they simply did not want the Persian Empire on the shores of Ionia, much too close for comfort. And in a mirror of the modern alliance of the US, UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand, the mainland Greeks felt a kinship to the Greeks of Ionia, certainly in the face of Persian aggression. Ultimately, we know that Athens, Sparta and the other Greek city-states put aside their fractious relationships to throw the Persians out of mainland Greece, Thrace, Macedonia and Ionia in a spectacular string of military victories. But the Persians still ended up controlling Ionia because they relied on the old strategy of divide and conquer. With the immediate threat of Persia gone, Athens and Sparta went back to their endless squabbling and Persia was right in the middle of it, bribing, cajoling, supporting. With Greece divided, distracted and weakened by ceaseless infighting, Persia quietly retook Ionia. Ever since, the narrow strip of water separating Europe and the Middle East, the Bosphorus, has been the conceptual border between Europe and Asia, East and West. And Greece's dalliances with democracy and philosophy, so different from Persian imperial deified monarchy, helped to grow that embryonic idea into a reality which grew as the centuries crept by. The boundaries of the Roman Empire and its successor states, as well as European Christendom and the Islamic world of the Middle East and North Africa, cemented it even further. 
And let's take a moment to think about the Roman Empire. Enormous in its extent, but essentially bounded by geography. From Hadrian's Wall, which deliberately spanned the narrowest point of northern Britain, to the Sahara Desert. And from the deserts of Arabia, to the Great Rhine and Danube rivers. Even the Roman Empire was subject to the laws of geography. All these landscapes formed natural defensive barriers, and they dominated Rome's military deployments and geopolitical relations with its neighbours. Without the Sahara and the Atlantic guarding its southern and western flanks, it's questionable whether even the might of Rome would have been able to so effectively expand and later hold such a large empire for hundreds of years. It's one of the single most important reasons the Roman world is considered to be one of, if not the most, enduring empires in history. The deserts of the Middle East remain to this day one of the geopolitical centres of gravity for the world. And that's in large part down to Saudi Arabia and its gigantic deposits of oil. Saudi Arabia represents a full quarter of the entire world's known petroleum reserves. And it's why the United States and its allies have placed such a premium on defending it. Reliable access to oil was one of the essential factors in the Allied victory over the Axis powers in World War II. Nothing else fueled the tanks and ships and aircraft which overpowered Germany and Japan, who themselves were looking to control sources of oil. Ever since, it's been clear to the militaries of the world that if they want to win wars, they have to have oil. The consumer economies of the world, too, grew to utterly depend on oil like nothing else. For energy generation, transport, tourism, plastics and dozens of other things. So control of Saudi Arabia means protecting your and your allies' economies and militaries. But this has meant an ever-growing US presence in Saudi Arabia. In 1979, three things coincided to make the geopolitical picture stark for the US. First, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. Then the Shah of Iran was overthrown by Islamic revolutionaries. And third, militants staged a brief rebellion in Mecca. Jimmy Carter, then US President, was sufficiently alarmed to formulate a new policy. That any move by a hostile power which threatens the security of the Persian Gulf would be regarded as an assault on the vital interests of the United States of America. This Carter Doctrine, as it's known, has governed US strategy in the region ever since. It led to $3 billion worth of US support for the anti-Soviet Mujahideen of Afghanistan, US help in crushing the Saudi rebels, and the two Gulf Wars. Indeed, in the first Gulf War, President Bush was more concerned about the security of Saudi Arabia than he was about Kuwait, at least in private. And it remains one of the reasons the US remains implacably opposed to Iran, and especially its development of nuclear weapons. Such an event 
would pose an unacceptable threat to US interests in the region and could well spark a major conflict. For all the talk of protecting the freedom and sovereignty of Saudi Arabia and Israel, US interests in the region are squarely on protecting its access to oil. There are many, many other examples we haven't got time to go through, but they include Britain's fight against Napoleon for the balance of power in Europe, China's building of artificial islands in the South China Sea, which could yet provoke a very dangerous war, and the several bitter conflicts of the Balkans. The next geopolitical contest is in space, and it's already well underway. US President Trump's establishment of the world's first military arm dedicated to space, the US Space Force, is a clear sign of things to come. But it's Russia and China who are leading the new arms race, with ground-based lasers, anti-satellite missiles and GPS jammers, to name just a few. Just last year, the UK and US detected an actual in-orbit satellite laser weapon. It was tested by Russia, which claims that it's a new technology to check on Russian space equipment. Sounds legit. It's been estimated that if the UK suffered an attack in space, it could cost the country a billion pounds a day. And US General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, warned just two months ago at the end of 2020 that the next Pearl Harbour could be in space. Because just like the Romans on the River Rhine, or the US in Saudi Arabia, whoever controls space controls the region in and around it. Put another way, whoever controls space controls the world. Join us next time for the final episode of this Why We Fight series, where we look at the psychology of the individual. Throughout history, whether with swords, bows or lance, cannon, rifle, tanks or aircraft, it goes without saying that combat is exceptionally dangerous. It causes mental and physical injury, and has of course resulted in the deaths of millions. So why do people often gladly go to war? And how do they continue to fight, even in the midst of the inevitable carnage? I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.